You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lemmer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hey. Beautiful winter day. Yeah. Lovely winter day. I was just in Texas, where it is actually lovely. Yeah. I was in, uh, in California. Lovely there, too. Oh. Well, you guys, it was great. The whole time you were gone, You can gorgeous. talk no shit. You're about to go to Vietnam, and then you're going to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. That's right. We're taking the podcast to Vietnam. Yeah. Any uh, Vietnam-based journalist uh, looking to do an interview, uh, let us know. You guys really going to bring those mics all the way to Vietnam? Hey. <laughs> it was more of a nice gesture kind of thing, <laughs> I was thinking. Max, uh, who did you talk to this week? Uh, I talked to Mac McClelland. Mac McClelland, who was one of the first people, if not the first person I interviewed uh, for the podcast way back in 2012. We really repeat been, guest. Yeah, repeat guest. Um, when uh, we were young. You guys might remember... Uh, that conversation uh, was a lot about how uh, Mac had been reporting on some uh, really intense, disaster, terrible things in the world uh, and had uh, been diagnosed with PTSD. And we talked a lot about journalism and trauma and how those two things intersect. Uh, and she has now written a book about her PTSD. It's called Irritable Hearts. It just came out yesterday. Uh, and it's really good. So that's a good what we're reason about. to have her back on. Yeah, she is uh, one of my favorite writers. Certainly one of my favorite like young writers. She's also one of my favorite people. She's just fucking fearless. And uh, a book like this hasn't really been written. Mostly like uh, PTSD is just about soldiers. And I think that's why she wanted to write it. And uh, that was a subtle plug too. I didn't even know that was going to end in a plug. What what a plug there? Plug the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that means a lot coming from a pro like you. I know. Hey. I know. He doesn't hand out those compliments lightly. No. Uh, speaking of, Aaron, what would you want to plug today? I'm not going to try and segue from PTSD to Tiny Letter because Tiny Letter is a pure joy. There's nothing traumatizing about using it at all. In fact, it's so simple you barely know it's there, yet you're communicating with your audience weekly, daily, monthly. Whatever your frequency of Tiny Letter, you're going to enjoy the experience. It's from the good people at MailChimp. We thank them for their sponsorship. We have another sponsor today, the good folks at Alarm Grid. (laughs) Sweet sirens out. (laughs) You've been practicing that? 
<laughs> into all kinds of sound effects. Uh, Alarm Grid is a DIY security company. Basically, their whole thing is having an alarm system does not need to be a hugely expensive or be a huge pain in the ass. Uh, go to alarmgrid.com slash longform. You'll get your first month free. Uh, they sent us all alarms. We've set them up. It was super easy. Thanks to alarm. Aaron, uh, my house has not been broken into since I got that alarm grid going. <laughs> Except for the four times that you locked yourself out. Yeah, yeah. That, that is not uh, that is not one of the services they provide is uh, preventing you from getting locked out of your house. Or an alarm that sounds like you've stepped on a cat's tail, we which is what yours yeah. sounded like. Well, I will now. say this though, because we have an alarm in our office here. And uh, it's been uh, inadvertently set off approximately 17 times in the last year. So if I, you know, as someone who has considered getting an alarm in my home, I would look for a simpler, uh, um, more self-contained option like Alarm Grid that really uh, matches your needs. Well, thank God for their sponsorship then. Yeah. All right. Here's Max with Mac McClellan. Hey, Mac McClellan. Hi, Max. Got a uh, big week. Your book is coming out this week. And I think that this was the first interview for the podcast I did was with you. Really? Yeah. I think that's right. Wow. I don't know. It was like two years ago. More than two years ago. It was two, more than two years ago. You've been doing the podcast It was for a so really long. long time ago. It was two and a half years ago, something like that. And uh, I went to your house in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And I really, not that like I know what I'm doing now, but I really didn't know what I was doing then. And I put one microphone down on like a coffee table mm-hmm. and then you and I just sat on your couch and like yeah. talk not even like in the vicinity of a microphone really That's like true. it was just kind of like uh it was around it was like between us sort of we yeah. were we were near nearish to it yeah this wasn't as fancy as what we're doing right now no this is pretty high tech this is fancy this is pretty i mean we have two microphones yeah starting there That's pretty yeah exciting. we have our own two and a half years ago we talked uh, a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder. I was like, hey, Max, welcome to my house. (laughs) I have PTSD. I'm having a nervous breakdown. Let's talk about it. One of the things I remember about that conversation was that, like, we were talking about all this stuff that I found to be really, like, intense and uncomfortable, and you seem to be having, like, a really good time (laughs) talking about it. And I did not... Really a really good time? Oh, a pretty good time. Like, yeah, you were were (laughs) laughing a lot about things that... I made me uncomfortable. Like that yeah. that were uh that sounded really really hard. Yeah. Well yeah, but by then I was more used to it, you know. I yeah. was more used to yeah. it. I was there was already a lot of therapy had happened by then. So it was like my part-time job talking about the things I was talking about. So yeah. <laughs> it was also the first time I'd ever done one of these fucking interviews and 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 we'd never met. And we'd and never met. And you were in my house and we were alone. Yeah. Anything could have happened. <laughs> that, that microphone was there. Right. Yeah. But now you're in New York. Mm-hmm. Two and a half years later, and uh, you have written a book mm-hmm. that is about the same the same topic that, that I we wrote were... just to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> it's entirely about post traumatic stress that's disorder. The, that's like the the deck of the book. Yeah. Well, I feel like now I've read the book, and now I feel like I have a, a somewhat better understanding. Well, thank God. It would have been a, a failure if the book didn't give me a better yeah, understanding of what you've been through. Yeah, if you read all those pages, oh my God. But I'm not, I, I don't feel uncomfortable. I feel ready to talk to you about it. Okay, let's do it's it. It's like what I'm driving at. Let's do it. So here's here's where we should start, I think, which is in Haiti, okay. 2010. Mm-hmm. The year of the big earthquake. You had landed in Haiti. You had just spent four months covering Deepwater Horizon. God, that makes me sound so much cooler than I am. You had just spent 
four months covering <laughs> what, 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 what do you want to say? Like you, you had previously spent a week like binge-watching crime shows on Netflix. <laughs> like, journalistically, you had just been <laughs> on the Gulf Coast covering a disaster. And then uh, you went to Haiti to cover a disaster. That's right. And it was more the aftermath of the disaster because by then it had been like eight months right. since the earthquake. And you were there uh, particularly to do some reporting around uh, violence against women in the mm-hmm. aftermath of the, of the earthquake. And two quite important things happened basically the same day. A bunch of really important things happened in like three days. I arrived. Mm-hmm. I met this French dude. We Frenched. I woke up the next morning, I went to work, and I was with, uh, I don't really go into it in the book, and so I'm not really going to go into it here, but basically I was witness to some very, somebody was having a really bad day, and I was with these very uh, upset and perturbed um, rape survivors and clinics and things like this. So... Something happened, and it shook me up, and then I, um, the next day, started getting harassed by some of the people who were staying in my hotel, because I was like a girl there by myself, and whatever. And then the next day, I had a driver who uh, took me to this, we were supposed to go do this interview, and then he drove me like way outside the city limits, and like to this like little room and he was like oh this is where we're going to talk to these people so I go into this apartment and it's just like it's kind of like the size of the room we're in this tiny room right now it's like a little closet and it just had like a bed in it and he was like here we are and there was nobody there and it was terrifying and I got out of it and I got him to take me home and it was okay but it just like I felt very unsafe and everyone else that I was around and talking to also was very unsafe and it was the very beginning so I still had a couple weeks to go and so for the whole time I was there I felt very unsafe and that is often a key component of post-traumatic stress disorder so when I got back to San Francisco I just like I started falling apart while I was still in Haiti but I fell apart spectacularly once I got back to California. What were the symptoms of falling apart? Um, I couldn't stop crying. Like, I would see someone, and they'd be like, hey, how's it going? And I would just start sobbing, which is, like, not what I usually do. And uh, I felt like I needed to be drunk all the time, and which is also not something I usually do. <laughs> and that started in Haiti, actually. I was like, I need to be drunk. So I would get home, home, you know, to my hotel after reporting every day, and I would just, like, drink my face off and smoke these Haitian cigarettes that will just, like, rip <laughs> your lungs out. And I continued that when I got back to California and I was having nightmares and I was having flashbacks and I was terrified and confused and disoriented all the time. I mean, I was a completely different person. I was completely unrecognizable to myself, which is terrifying to not know you. And uh, I mean, you write about this a lot in the book, but to not know how you're going to react both to extraordinary things but also completely everyday mundane things yeah that's part of the terror of it is like it it, anything could happen at any time you know you could just be like hanging out watching tv or having a conversation and just completely lose your shit and just to not know if that's going to happen or when that's going to happen or why that's going to happen is very i mean it puts you on edge even more on edge constantly 
one of the things reading the book for me, like you write about this a lot, how sort of PTSD, even as you got diagnosed, it, you sort of like assumed it was only for veterans. Yeah. And I think that was kind of my assumption, too, was just like yeah. I hadn't hadn't read any stories about PTSD that weren't about veterans. I wonder if you could describe what that feeling is a little bit more, because it struck me in the book. It's like um, it made me think about a bunch of people in my life in a different way. Really? Yeah. My poor therapist. So I went to, as I have described my symptoms, obviously I was like, I need help. So I went to therapy like the day I got back or the morning after I got back. And she was like, well, it sounds like, you know, you have the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was like, that's crazy. And it just continued and it wouldn't go away and it wasn't getting better. And she was like, I would keep going to see her and she would keep saying, well, this is normal because you have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was like, no, like I completely did not believe her at all. And she had to, she was on this campaign to convince me, this is what I was paying her for, just to convince me that I had a problem. I was like, that's for soldiers. It doesn't make any sense. And nothing that bad happened to me, in my opinion, at that time. You know, I see it very differently now, but at the time I was like, who cares? You know, like it wasn't that big of a deal and I don't have any right to be traumatized. Being traumatized is for people who like were in a war or, you know, some other horrible thing. But then as I started doing the research and this is why part of the reason why I wanted to write the book was about non-soldiers is just because uh, violence against women is actually the biggest cause of PTSD in the United States but you never hear it associated that way so people don't realize what the problem is that they're having or that they have a problem and it's just this completely ignored and very very big aspect of it one thing that's maybe important for people who haven't listened to that first episode or haven't read a lot of your work, like you had seen really horrible things for a while. Yeah. And maybe that was part of why you sort of couldn't believe that it was happening. Yes and no. Like okay. I had my job was really intense and Deepwater Horizon honestly was so terrible. I mean, the people, the way that it impacted the people who live there. And I used to live in New Orleans and so I was really connected to that town and sort of the area and the way that it impacted people. I mean, their lives were over, like really over. And they were like, we're going to lose our house and I'm going to lose my boat and we don't have a job. And my husband's drunk all the time now. And now we fight and we're going to get divorced. And I mean, it was really, it was very intense. But it's not like I had been for years at that point in Afghanistan, you know, working embedded with troops or something. So, uh, but I had, and I, I had been through some tough reporting assignments before that's accurate so yeah that was part of one of the reasons I consider myself very adaptable (laughs) in general and like pretty tough and like I can handle my business or like I thought that I could so that was another part of the reason why it was so scary to me but that again like with post-traumatic stress disorder that's stupid because like marines are tough and them getting or not getting post-traumatic stress disorder has nothing to do with how tough you are it's just how your nervous system reacts do you remember the moment where you were like, where you relented? <laughs> you were like, okay, I, this is... So I was like, fine, PTSD, I believe you. Yeah, this is what's going on. You know, I would say within a few or several months, I had like mostly accepted it, but just accepting that it was true still did not make me feel like it was valid. Like I believed that I had PTSD, but I did not believe that I was allowed to have PTSD still because, I don't know, I just didn't have a good enough reason or something. So that was that one that took, I mean, that took like years for Mm -hmm. me to get past that. 
the reason the moment in Haiti is not discussed in the book. Mm-hmm. I was thinking on my way over here, like uh, how to ask you about this. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's like a that's uh, wrong to ask you about it. <laughs> uh, you can just say like this is not something you should ask me about. Uh, this is one of these things you're laughing now. Like I'm yeah. uncomfortable when you're laughing. Um, <laughs> to write a 250-page book mm-hmm. about trauma and PTSD and not include the moment that gave you PTSD is um, it's an interesting choice. Mm-hmm. Why? Why make that choice? Well, it was the only choice. I mean, for privacy reasons, it was... It just it was the only choice. And I talk about I go into it as much as I possibly can. There's no point in me not writing about it in the book and then going and like blathering about it. Sure. <laughs> Otherwise, on the record, then I might as well have just done I'm it. In, so. I'm interested in it from like a, a like a journalistic and writing standpoint. Like sure. It, it seems like a challenge to write a book about trauma without being able to describe the event that gave you that I trauma. agree. I totally agree. So, And I have had people be like, uh, the rest of this book was like weird for me because I felt like I was missing this thing. And I'm like, I get it. And I'm, I'm sorry, but that's the only way that that could be done for because it involved other people. And those other people didn't want to be involved in, you know, my writing about it. And so they weren't. So I don't know. People have different sort of reactions to it. But I, do I think if I had laid out like lots of scene and lots of background and stuff like as a reader, that would be more satisfying? Probably. I think that it would. But it was it, it was not an option. And part of the reason it wasn't an option is because you wrote an essay about it and the fallout from that was basically what took it off the table for the book? Yeah, well, the people involved were not happy. When I wrote that essay, I certainly wasn't like, I'm going to write an essay and say whatever I want. I I thought that I was doing a good job of protecting and anonymizing other people, but still they weren't happy. And so I wasn't going to do the same thing again on a possibly grander scale. Yeah. So, Did that give you any hesitation about writing the book? Yeah, but a million things gave me hesitation about writing Let's talk the book. About the million I, got a, things. I got a list. Yeah. It's so long. <laughs> what's on the list? I can. I mean, I, I have some assumptions about what's on the list, but maybe you should tell yeah, me. Yeah, you, you can guess if you want, but yeah, I could. I could whichever way you want to do it, I could uh, also just tell you, know you. You should just tell me. What were like? What were the pain points? What, what were the uh... everything? Every single thing. Okay, so when I met up with you today, you said that you talked to your dad, and your dad had read my book review in the Times today, right? And yeah. he told you to be nice to me. Yeah, that's true. So your dad, this guy I never met before, read a synopsis about the book and he's like w- worried about me or <laughs> thinks I'm fragile or nuts or who know you know whatever. Yeah. That's the sort of thing. You make yourself so vulnerable when you give people so much information, especially about mental illness. Like people do not Mental illness makes people so uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that this book hasn't been written, right? Yeah, but you're right. Once you do it, you can't take it back. So, like, your dad is always going to think about me like that. And then I don't think you should worry so much about him. This is an example. Like, I don't know your dad. I'm sure that mostly what my dad was saying was like, it'd be really, really bad if you were a dick. Don't like (laughs) this. It would it would reflect badly. I know, but like family, if you were an asshole, like that, I deserve extra consideration about that or something because I'm 
That's just what he says to me all the time. Really? Yeah. He's just like, don't be a dick. Don't be a dick. Yeah. Okay, well, you sort of didn't give me the specifics, and I'm just going to guess. That was pretty specific. No, that was pretty general, actually. <laughs> but I had the example about your dad. We are not, like, old friends, but we have met before. And you think differently about me, or you did, when we met up today, than you had before. You said it. I mean, you told me that you did. So, like, you were worried. You weren't sure if I had a drinking problem or if I could handle myself. These are the kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, I did it, obviously. And I do think that it's important, and that's why I did it. So I would be sort of, like, regroup and be like, there's a reason why you're doing this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there were so many days when I was like, I should not be doing this. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week, Alarm Grid. Alarm Grid is a DIY security company focused on customer experience. Their whole idea is to make getting an alarm set up in your office or your house as easy as possible. There's no gimmicks. There's no hidden fees, no crazy contracts. Uh, If you've ever tried before to get an alarm system set up with one of the big companies, you know it's basically a scam. Uh, Either they get you with super expensive hardware or the hardware is free, but the contract lasts until like 2075. With AlarmGrid, everything is totally straightforward. There's no activation fee, no monitoring fee. They're not in the business of getting you to buy equipment you don't need. And best of all, they make setting up the equipment you do need insanely easy. I'm like the least handy person alive, and it took me all of five minutes. Uh, So if you're interested in a simple way to make your home or office more secure, go to alarmgrid.com slash longform. The first month is free for our listeners. Uh, And I just want to say one more thing about that page, alarmgrid.com slash longform. Uh, You'll really get a sense of the people behind the company if you check it out. AlarmGrid came to us. They like the show, and they want to support what we're doing here. Uh, And they've written this really nice note about why they're sponsoring the show. Um, Here's my favorite line. I'm just going to read this to you. Uh, So, sure, the ad spot benefits us because now you know who we are at AlarmGrid, but our hope is that it benefited you simply because it continues to let Longform do its good work. Man, these are like uh, the nicest guys alive. So if you're going to buy an alarm, please, for us, for yourself, buy it from AlarmGrid. Okay, let's get back to Mac. Is there anything in the book that you regret keeping in? Not yet. But it's early. The book hasn't come out yet. So early. My mom wanted me to take out more of the stuff about me having sex with people (laughs) because she thinks that I was being a little cavalier Mm -hmm. with the discussion and that I sounded slutty. And she was like, nobody likes slutty girls. And I was like, all right. But I mean, my, my mom's Catholic. I was less, much less. I, that I'm actually not concerned about at all. I, but nobody likes crazy girls, and that I admit I'm a lot more. That's the one that. I feel like a lot of people like crazy girls. Nobody likes crazy girls. <laughs> not really. Likes them for what? <laughs> like, Fair question. Yeah. What about the story about your dad? Was that uncomfortable to put in a book? So I fact check everything, and so I had a fact checker, and we sort of divided and conquered some of the main points, and I was like, I'll handle all the ones where I have to call my parents and talk to them about, like, this very personal stuff to them. So I was fact-checking these things with my parents, and my dad was... Sorry, your dad embezzled millions of dollars. Yeah, that's the the thing that that we're talking about. That, and he was having some affairs. Some affairs. When he was married to my mom. So was my dad pumped? No, he was not. Um, but we talked through it, and I actually... Did he, like, make a plea to have you 
not have it in? I can't remember if it was a plea or if it was like, you suck. But uh, either way, we worked through it. My dad and I are very good friends. I talk to my dad like every day. So um, we, we worked it out. And he saw all the language as it would appear. And he made like, uh, he did make a plea for a couple of changes. What was that like fact checking your dad? Do not ever fact check your parents' divorce with your parents. Especially my parents haven't spoken in like 12 years. My mom is my dad's sworn mortal enemy. So then I'm calling my mom and I'm like, okay, well, dad says it happened like this. And she's like, the fuck do I care what your father said? And like, I was like, he wants me, to, you know, to like tweak this part a little bit. So it's like this and this more, more sensitive just to like his life. My dad has a life, you know, he's a person. And my mom was like, oh, she was like, you are not making him sound sufficiently like a monster because he is. Did anything positive come out of it? No, I wouldn't say that it was. I don't know. I can't can't think of anything. (laughs) But I feel like I got to a good and true and not too horrible version of the events. Because, you know, originally my dad was like, I don't want this to happen. I was like, I'm sorry, dude, but you did those things to other people and other people were impacted like me so for example too bad but ultimately he signed up like he read you know as a reporter or a fact checker you never give the actual copy to a source you know you would never because they would just freak out when they saw it but my dad read the actual words like several times and he was like okay so he actually added the thing where i explain how he started embezzling money he was like can we have some explanation about this? And yeah. at first I was like, I don't care what you think. And then I was like, oh, you know what? If I was a reader, I might kind of want to know why this guy was doing this. It, and to- it totally changed it. I didn't me. even know. Oh, really? That was news to me. Yeah. So he wrote me this like long explanation. I had no idea. Basically, his, his brother had died. Yeah. And you guys had adopted his two kids. Yeah. Which and... that obviously I knew, but I didn't realize right. that that was when he started stealing money and that it just sort of like spiraled out of control. I didn't know that. So, but that was another thing that my mom was like mad that I added that because it makes him sound like a, a human person, it's not like a some like greedy, like money stealing robot or something. So, but I think it is good to know. So I did learn that. I don't know if I'd call that like a positive outcome, but the other person who uh, who maybe. Uh, would feel a bit exposed in the book, aside from you uh, and your folks, is your is your husband. Yeah, um, he's very exposed. He is quite exposed. He is yeah. quite exposed in like many uh, in all the ways. There's basically two stories in the book that are intertwined. Which uh, one is your PTSD and therapy and and working on that, uh, and the other is this relationship, which also started in Haiti. With a young French man. Yeah, that was the French guy I Frenched. Yeah. Sort of the story of you two falling in love uh, over Skype and email. <laughs> yeah. And in like random, insanely romantic locations around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out that it is not easy to uh, form a passionate, long distance relationship while undergoing treatment for PTSD twice a week. That's true. It was even worse when he moved into my house, though, actually. How so? Well, because, like, when we were just Skyping and meeting in Montpellier or whatever, then we only had, like, a finite period of time where we had to be together. But once he moved into my house, and you saw my house in San Francisco, it was, like, a 350-square-foot studio. We both lived in it. We lived in it. 
together and I had episodes all the time and I was used to having them by myself which is way less awkward frankly because there's nobody what do you there mean you say episodes it could be anything like I could have a flashback and I would totally freak out and then I would have to like lock myself in the bathroom and like cry on the floor for five or six hours for example you know so like here comes this Frenchman who barely speaks English and he arrives in my house and this is just a thing that I do and at that time I was doing it like almost every day and so and he'd seen me do it before in France and uh he was starting to get a little bit spooked even at that point but when you're in the same studio man there's like no escaping like you if you have two bedrooms you could go to the guest room and cry maybe I don't know, you don't have to make it everybody's business all the time, but he was just like, I mean, he had to go through all of that stuff. And then he wants to do something. You don't just want to watch. You can't just be like, leave me here for six hours to like shake and cry. Like, it's so hard for a person to be like, cool, I will totally do that. But he can do it now. Like, he's so used to it. But what a big learning curve that was. <laughs> because, like, and also he was a soldier, you know, he's military police. So he's like, I want to be helpful. I'm supposed to be good at helping people. And I was like, just leave me here. You know, like, oh, my God. Oh, it was such a disaster. He didn't even want to read the book. I was like, you need to read this because you are in it. <laughs> and, like, he kept putting it off. And finally, it was, like, going to print. And I was like, babe, you have to read this because if there's anything you want taken out of it, you have to tell me now. Like, otherwise, it'll be too late. And he was like, I don't care because he's French. And he does not care. He was like, I don't care what it says, and I don't care what anybody says or anybody thinks. And I was like, just please read this. So I forced him to read it. And then he was like, yeah, I still don't care. So, no changes. Well, there was like a fact check thing, you know, a couple fact check things where he was like, actually, my unit something, you know, whatever. Yeah. But no, he was just like, I don't, I don't give, I told you I don't give a shit, and I still don't give a shit, and I don't know why you give a shit, and, you know, Americans are oversensitive. The end. <laughs> Period. <laughs> yeah. I had this media lunch in November, and one of the book editors who was there was like, the first thing she said to me was, are you still married to the person that this book is about? Really? <laughs> yeah. I just, you know, I just, like, read the book over, <laughs> over the last couple of days. I'm really glad to hear that. And Oh, you didn't think we were going to make it? No, no, no. I did. I think I knew that you had made it. Okay. But you were saying, like... I mean, that's like why the guy is awesome and also maybe why French people are awesome that he doesn't give a shit because you were saying like I showed up and I was like a little worried about you and my dad was like a little worried about yeah. you after reading the book and I just met you and Nico mm. downstairs and like I think if I were him I would have been like oh man this guy just read that book he's gonna have all these right. like know all this crazy shit about me right he did not seem to care. No, he's just... He Completely was just, unfaced. He was like, hey, what's up, man? He used to try to make me care less, you know, because... I mean, it's great to not give a shit what anybody thinks about you, but, like, who does that? Like, yeah, I wish that that was true about me, but it's not. Do you think that this book has a chance to make you care less? Oh, that's a really good question. I had never thought of it. Mostly what I was thinking of was if I couldn't handle whatever happened... We have a plan. We have a plan. We're it, leaving the country. In response to the book. For a couple of weeks. Yeah. Because, like, if it gets really ugly and I just, like, I, can't, I mean, I, I have an emotional disorder, you may have heard. So sometimes, you know, like, things just get 
things just get kind of ugly. And if I wasn't handling it and wasn't handling myself well enough, we were like, okay, we're just going to leave for a couple of weeks where there's not like internet and or where we're not attached to the internet and people can't call me. And like, because even if you don't read stuff, somebody will always call you. You know, like one of your friends will call and be like, oh my God, I just read this thing in the paper and said you were a whore or whatever. You know what I mean? Like you just, whatever. So we were prepared to leave. But, um, and I, I still am, like if I, just to take care of myself, like if that's the thing that I need. Like going into it, I believed I was going to be able to handle it. Otherwise, I would not have done it. So we were talking, like when we were doing like the final edits and stuff, like I was having conversations with Nico where I was like, that means we have this many months until this comes out. Like, I've been doing a lot better lately. Do we think I'm going to be stable enough by the time that this happens to handle it? I mean, I anticipated it being okay, but you never know. You don't have to be a crazy person to have really strong, horrible reactions to stuff like that. I mean, the book's coming out 48 hours from now. How, how, <laughs> how are you feeling? Like, I, mean, I feel fine. Good. You seem great. Seem better than the last time you saw me. I'm not probably. worried. You seemed a little concerned. You were like begging me to quit my job. Oh, the, when we did the last podcast? Yeah. Yeah, I stand by that. <laughs> Still? That was like what your therapists were saying too. I have a lot of therapists. It depends on who you're talking about. But to be fair, I wasn't saying you should quit your job. I was just saying you should write celebrity profiles all the time only. Occasional stories or that were not you were about like, desperation you should go and work sadness. For cat fancy. That's what you you were like, you you have to you work would, for cat fancy. You would have improved cat fancy quite a bit. <laughs> Cat Fancy would be a better magazine. But, like, I just did this feature about the Charlie Hebdo shootings in Paris. And that was a pretty intense assignment. And we were, the place where we were staying was right down the street from the Charlie Hebdo offices. And did you see that video of the one police officer that morning getting shot on the sidewalk? Yeah. So that sidewalk was between, like, us and most things. So we walked across it, and there were these big... You know, the people had built these big shrines and everything. And walking across it every day, like, you can feel, maybe a normal person can't feel, but I'm a very sensitive creature. And when I was walking through, even before the first time we walked through it, when we were coming up to it, I was like, I felt, it was, I mean, it was a lot. That it was a lot to take in. And the people I was interviewing, that was a lot to take in. And a couple times I had to, like, stop. And I woke up this one night in the middle of the night just like I woke up and I was like I probably have jet lag you know whatever Paris and then 10 minutes later I just started crying like so hard Nico woke up and he was like what's going on I was like oh I don't know probably nothing and like again at this point it's just like okay you know whatever he's like do you need something and if you don't like I'm going back to sleep and I was like no I'm good it just needs it just needs to run its course and I think that's fine that's the same way like I described like when my like bum knee acts up (laughs) Like, word for word. I'm not going to go to the doctor. It's fucking fine. It'll be fine in, like, no, a couple of days. No, listen to your tone. That's Your tone is so obstinate. Mine was so, like, open to whatever was happening. <laughs> okay. Yours is, like, the guy who won't go to the doctor, even when he really should. I'm not saying you need to go. I'm just saying your tone. Your tone suggested that. Maybe what I meant to say there is, after reading the book, it's really heartening to hear you say that. Because so much of the book is these... Episodes. episodes. There's a uh, lot of episodes. Yeah. Even how, no matter how many we turned out, there were still so many left. And the episodes themselves are terrible. Yeah. But at least in the way you write about it, 
the thing that makes them truly awful is that you don't know what the fuck they are. Yeah. Or or why they're happening or when they'll stop or when they'll start again. And, yeah. And so to hear you say it happened and you knew it was happening, that, that seems really good. Yeah, I have a very different relationship to episodes now. In fairness to myself from before, they were a lot worse before. Yeah. I mean, because they would not go away. And when they happen like every day and when they happen for many, many hours, that's a very different thing than I wake up in Paris and I cry for like an hour or something. Like big deal. Like, or to me at this point, big fucking deal. Throughout the book, you're sort of like, you're really letting people in to some pretty dark thoughts. There's a lot of stuff about wanting to hurt yourself mm-hmm. and not being able to see anything but other people getting hurt. Daymares and nightmares. Yeah. And it's really awful. <laughs> it's really awful. Um, and I'm sorry, I hope this is, like, you know, I don't, I don't want to offend you, but I'm worried about you reading it. Sure. And then there's this point, like, towards the end of the book where you describe, like, something super awful. I think it's like um, cutting your husband open with a giant knife. I know what you're talking about. I was thinking about other people, uh, like, disemboweling themselves or something like that. Something like yeah. that. And and yeah. The, and the, but there's this line. This is, like, towards the end of the book. Yeah, yeah. And there's this line where it just says, like, wee. <laughs> Yeah, because when I thought about it that time, usually like when I would go to sleep, I would close my eyes and I would just like picture the most like disgusting and disturbing things that you could imagine. That was like the that was how I sort of like calmed myself into sleep because that was what I was used to doing from like all day. Yeah, and I had this one day and this super gross. I really feel like it was about disemboweling. Hold on, like, I'm just gonna find it. Okay. I'm gonna find it. <laughs> Eventually, uh, another day after days, this worn out and in his arms. Uh, with his warmth surrounding my ribcage in our bed, I softened up, <laughs> and there the truth was, sitting in my mouth, I didn't want the sushi guy to know that I'm in love, I said suddenly, <laughs> out of nowhere, for both of us. What? Nico asked. Why? Because. Then he would know that I needed you. Nico made a face. And? He would think I couldn't take care of myself, I said. And as the realization came together, I started crying. Uh, and then he would think I would be easy to kill. Yeah. We. 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 But that we actually, when I like, I the, the, I could grab that page because I underlined it. And I was like, that that's like the one of the first times where it's like Mac. Yeah. You know, it's like that's how you yeah. interact with this stuff, and 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 it seemed like that was some moment in the book where something was starting to turn. Well, I was like, figuring it out. Yeah, like you were able to take at least a step back and sort right. of see what was going on. Yeah. Tens of thousands of dollars worth of therapy. And how therapeutic was writing about it? It was already stuff I'd hashed out, you know, eight billion times right. and whatever. So I don't know how useful that. You were but. sort of just you were pretty fluent in it already. Yeah. I was like this again. Still <laughs> talking about this thing that makes me cry, you know, as I'm like typing. And then I'm like, Wah. and then I go take a break. <laughs> I don't like it when you like play cry like that. It's weird. Why? I don't know. It's that I, the noise that I made or the gesture. It was the gesture. I think. Oh, I love that for some reason. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know. know why. Okay, sorry. I'll try to. No, you can do whatever you want. It's like I, yeah. I don't know. It, like uh, you are more healed about it than I am. <laughs> That's right. Like this is it's raw for me right now. Did I? Yeah. When, did I? Did I touch something like too the sensitive book? or something? Yeah. Was that? harrowing for you to read dissociating was harrowing really yeah 
Huh. Yeah, I found that I didn't know about that. And at the beginning when you started writing about it, Mm -hmm. I couldn't wrap my head around it. Mm -hmm. And then by the end, I could. And Mm -hmm. it freaked the shit out of me. That's so weird. So something you couldn't even relate to at all was the thing that was really hard? Well, I think that's that made me understand better what PTSD is like. Yeah. Because after reading the book, it sounds like such a huge part of it was you being like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. And it, like, it feels like it's coming out of nowhere. Like you had these awful experiences in Haiti that also on the spectrum of things were not that much more awful than a bunch of other things that happened in your life. Yeah. Uh, and why were these symptoms happening now? Why could you not feel your torso? That was harrowing just because it helped me understand how kind of out of nowhere it must have felt mm-hmm. and how scary that must have been. Yeah, that's so interesting because everybody reacts totally differently. Yeah. Now that I'm starting to get like people's responses to it, it's so interesting what is the thing that makes it hard, that, that is the thing that's hard for them to like look at or think about. That essay you wrote for good, throughout the book you keep quoting emails, like just reprinting emails yeah. that you're getting from people about how much it resonated with them, how familiar it felt, how happy they were that you wrote about it. Do you expect that this is going to have the same kind of response? If I didn't think it was going to be useful, I definitely would not have done it. Like, definitely I didn't do it for, like, glory, right? So, I mean, your dad thinks I'm crazy. And, like, maybe potential employers, you know, like, you just don't know. There's a lot of risks, I think, in... uh putting this much information about yourself, especially about a disorder into the world. But yeah, I mean, I was like, this this book would have been so helpful to me if I had been able to read it and recognize that this was a thing and this was a thing for other people and this was an experience. Then for me to make myself that vulnerable, the only reason why it would have been worth it would be if it was like going to advance the dialogue about these issues in some way. What feels the most vulnerable? I mean, there's so much stigma around mental illness. So anything, I mean, I was not in control of myself. Like, that's the worst thing that you can be. Like, nobody wants people to not be in control of their shit, especially a lady. I mean, come on. Like, that's, you don't want to be that. A lot of people in the industry already know that I have PTSD, whatever, but I'm still working and people know I'm still working. But they didn't read that. So (laughs) is it possible that they're going to read it and they're going to be like, oh, well, we should ask her to do that story. And they'll be like, oh, you know what? She's nuts and we should not ask her to do stuff like that. Like there's so much uh, misunderstanding about and uncomfortableness, as you said, you know, like I was talking to someone who was in a hiring process. I was talking to an editor who was hiring someone and he said uh, about like I, I knew the person that he was interviewing or whatever. And we were just chatting about it, and he was like, does she have, um, is there, like, any kind of unexpected drama I should be, you know what I mean? Like, th- something I should know about this kind of thing? And I'm like, oh, see, that's the sort of thing. Like, it seems innocuous, but... I don't think you should worry about that. The first ten people who told me about you described you as a badass. Like, that is, like, the word that people use <laughs> to describe you. That's true. That is, a, like, I could search my email... I'm familiar with like, that, McClelland yeah. ...for, like, McClelland badass, and there'd be, like, a bunch of... <laughs> fucking hits for that you know and I would argue that putting yourself out there in this way is a you know an an act of extreme badassery but it is different than 
that image that was out there. That was like it's different kind of badass. Yeah. Yeah, like leather jacket, not giving a fuck. Yeah, probably doing coke. Definitely not crying. Definitely not. No crying. Only ironic crying, if any crying. Right. Possibly fighting. Probably fighting. Yeah. Did that not feel like you? Does that like that? Does that description not feel like it ever fit? Badass. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. The badass. It makes me blush a little bit when people would say that because, like, it's so flattering. It's, it's very flattering because we think we think that badasses are cool. And, like, I want to be cool. Totally. So when people were like, she's a badass, I'm like, yes, definitely. I don't think I thought, like, that's not true. Because to me, I think my personal definition was, like, I mean, I still often conducted myself and my work with a sense of fearlessness and or what I was made to understand eventually like it seemed very natural to me going into it but then more and more people would be like I would never do that and I'm like you're right a lot of people would never do that this is a weird thing to be doing so what, I, what are you thinking of when you say that like what's an example of uh so the, you would do that the first time wouldn't? it ever happened to me <laughs> was the first thing I wrote for Mother Jones when I was like an intern or something was about the website sugardaddy.com and I had some friends who were using this website and so what happens on sugardaddy.com you get a sugar daddy <laughs> you make it's a dating website so you make like a profile and the old rich dudes make oh, a yeah. profile and they'll put like in their profile like they can't sign up if they don't have like a net worth of a certain amount I don't know how like background checked that really is but in theory yeah and they can put right on their page like how much money they're willing to pay you and I can put on my page, like, I'm looking for a guy who will give me $5,000 a month. Like, whatever. So I wanted to write about this thing. So I was like, I'm a girl. And I was like 27 or something at the time. So I was like, I'm going to make a profile and go on some dates and see how much money these dudes offer me. Or like, how, how does this you know negotiating process work? And so I was like getting ready. I went from work. The, oh, man, the first dude... He was, took me to the Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> we were in San Francisco, and he takes me to the Cheesecake Factory. What a loser. So that was like, I mean, red flag. But anyway, I went from work, and it was like in San Francisco Union Square, like right by where the office was. And when I was leaving, one of my coworkers was like, you're so brave. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Like, that's a ridiculous word to use to describe me. But she was like, I would rather die than do what you're doing right now. Like, go on this date with this dude and just, like, see how much money he offers you and have sex with him. Like, she was like, that's crazy. And I was like, yeah, maybe that is crazy. You know, the more I thought about it, I was like, that is maybe a little bit crazy. (laughs) And he only offered me $500. What kind of sugar daddy is that? I know. I was like, what is this, Craigslist? (laughs) Come on, $500? Do you think that you will continue to pride yourself on some level of like doing this work fearlessly? If fearlessly means that I can wake up in the middle of the night and cry about it, then totally. But I mean, I only I don't pick any stories because it sounds really hard. You know, like that sounds intense and harrowing. Let's do that. Like I do what is interesting to me. And that's not always I mean, I do things that are not harrowing at all also. So um, if things like that continue to interest me, then yeah. I mean, I would hate to write about something I didn't care about. And a lot of times the stuff that I care about is like a little bit on the dark and twisty side. Not all the time, but sometimes it is. And yeah, I, I mean, I still do it now and I just take really good care of myself while I do it. Sounds good. I think so. <laughs> Sounds like a good uh... are you, are, So are you still advocating for me to quit my job? No, no. Or where where I'm are gonna, you coming out on I'm gonna it take now? A, I'm going to take a firm, I shouldn't tell you what to do stance. 
Well, that's smart. But I mean, just your your opinion has it changed at all, or or like privately, are you still like that? Jake should retire. I <laughs> know. I definitely don't think you should retire. I found myself a little a little sad. If you if you want my honest opinion, okay. But I found myself a little sad reading the book because I, f- I feel like you kept like um, describing yourself as oversensitive in yeah. like a pejorative way. Yeah. Like damn me and all these like emotions and empathy I feel. Yeah. And uh, I hope that that is not something that like you're actively trying to like eradicate from yourself. No. Have I made myself sound any less sensitive in this conversation? No. I'm but... the world's most sensitive creature, officially, I think. And I, no, 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 I, I know what you're talking about. But like, where did I get that idea that being sensitive is not good? From everywhere. There's no representation in our culture or in any conversations where people were like, you know what's the best? Being really sensitive to everything. That's not a thing at all. So I had this idea that that was terrible, which I got from everywhere. And that was part of my problem. Now I think it's kind of like I can I can feel things that other people don't, you know, and I, I think that my sensitivity really informs uh, my work. Like, I think if you were looking at it with that kind of lens, which you wouldn't be probably unless you were a therapist, you can see the, that I have really strong feelings and, like, the, the level of empathy that I have with people I'm talking to is, like, probably some people would consider it, like, pathological, but it's, like, it's very strong. And I, I can, at this point, I consider it an asset, although I recognize that it needs, I mean, I have to, I have to take care of myself more than maybe a less sensitive person but everybody should take care of themselves and nobody does so i don't i don't feel weird about that anymore that's good yeah it'd be a real shame if you felt weird about that i'm glad that uh removing your sensitivity was not like a like a lifelong goal no 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 i mean also i mean i'm married to a french person now i have to have like i have to have so much capacity for like dramatic like loving and passion and you can't just marry a frenchman if you have like moderate amounts of feelings about things i mean go ask him how he feels about like a certain brand of chocolate or something for example i feel like we should i should just like we should get him up here and just have him and then he should like give answer all these questions about how he feels about the book we should make him read passages he'll be like i don't care i don't give a fuck i'm french that's That's right that's what he's gonna say Mac, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you're doing well. <laughs> That's oh the point, God. right? That's it. Oh no! Thanks, Mac. Thank you, Max. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss Berman. Our intern this week, Rachel Mabe. Thanks so much to uh, Mac McClellan for taking time out of her busy book tour to do this stop on her busy book tour. Uh, the book is called Irritable Hearts. I recommend you get it and read it. Uh, we'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. 
And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.